0: good to be with you guys this morning. I do, again, want to just set our hearts right, so would you bow your heads with me one more time? Lord, you say in your Psalms that uh, the unfolding of your word gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. And Lord, we are simple. Uh, we may think we're complex, but Lord, you've designed us, you know us, and you set a plan and a purpose for each of our lives. And so this morning, as we gather around your word, would you use it uh, to impart understanding and to help grow us and to become more like your son, Jesus? It's in his name we pray. Amen. I want to start this morning telling you a story about my youngest brother, Daniel, who was adopted from Kazakhstan. Uh, And I'll start by telling you the story, I'll start by telling you that we did not plan to adopt him. In 2002, Daniel came to the U.S. as part of a program called Kids Save International. It was a, a ministry organization that was bringing kids from Kazakhstan, which is the country just south of Russia over from Kazakhstan to America for summer, like a summer hosting program. And so families weren't committing to adopting them, but they were gonna host orphans in their homes for one to two months, so families in America interested in international adoption could potentially explore that. And so pretty early on, uh, my mom found out about the program through the radio, I think it was, and, and uh, but pretty early on about hearing about it and signing up for it she and my dad made pretty clear that we weren't planning to adopt, but we wanted to host uh, Daniel. And so he stayed with us for that summer. Uh, my parents weren't really at the time looking to, in, in their mid-50s, weren't looking to, to add to their uh, already oversized quiver of children. Uh, Daniel would have made our, our, the kids in our family number 10. And so you, it's very clear that we weren't ready to take that on, but we did want to do something. Our hope was that by bringing Daniel into our home, maybe another family would feel led to, to, by meeting him and eventually adopt him. But no one followed up. Daniel didn't go, get adopted. At the age of five, he returned to the orphanage in Kazakhstan that September after two months in our home. And it wasn't easy for him. And we knew that because Daniel had an advocate, someone that um, had sponsored his entire trip from Kazakhstan to the United States and we got in touch with him about a, a couple of weeks after Daniel returned to the orphanage. Just wanted to see how he was doing. We had an idea that it was not going easy for him, but just wanted to check in on him. And sure enough, that advocate shared that after being back in the orphanage at the age of five, Daniel had basically cried for a month nonstop. That message from that advocate was a catalyst in our family. We were already torn and thinking maybe we should have adopted him. that conversation that my mom had pushed us into that, and a year later, I had a younger brother named Daniel. Praise God for that, but I always wonder, what if Daniel didn't have an advocate? Because Daniel had an advocate, we heard, and we listened, and we responded. Daniel's advocate spoke on his behalf, and we, our family, listened. The Bible teaches that Jesus is our advocate. To use the language that we're using today, he intercedes on our behalf before God. On behalf of man he goes before God. Dictionaries define intercession as uh, mediating or intervening on one's behalf or pleading another's case. When we look at the Bible, Romans chapter 8 verse 34 says, quote, who is he who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. That's Romans 8. Hebrews 7 verse 2 says, Therefore he is able to also save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Both those verses and many others attest that Jesus is doing something for us right now. We call that intercession, and that's what we want to look at this morning. We've studied various aspects of what we're calling Jesus' one act of righteousness this summer, which I've realized could kind of be divided into past, present, and future. In the past, we have Christ coming to earth, taking the flesh of a man, which is known as his incarnation, living his sinless life, dying, resurrecting, ascending to the right hand of God. We also studied A present thing, something God that Jesus is doing right now, which is his session, which I didn't even know existed until like four weeks ago. But that's what we call Jesus' reign. That's what he's doing, that's what that's kind of what this is right now. And within his session, he intercedes on our behalf. Next week we'll look at something that he'll do in the future, and that's his second coming. But for today we want to look at what Jesus' intercession means for us. What does it actually look like and mean? I think in one sense we should understand it because in a lot of ways we intercede on, be other, on each other's behalf all the time. We pray for each other. James chapter 5 says he who is sick should come before the leaders of a church and, and the elders and ask them to lay hands on him and ask for healing, right? We, we kind of know this intuitively. On social media people will share stuff that's going on in their life, good or bad. You know, births, adoptions, uh, or more bittersweet things like moving away. Or difficult things like medical diagnoses or the loss of loved ones. And on their behalf, we will share that we are praying for them. And there's something comforting about that for that person. So we, from man's perspective, we kind of understand what it means to intercede on behalf of another. But what about Jesus' intercession? Romans 8 and, and Hebrews 2, 7, the verses I mentioned earlier, say he it's something he's currently doing. He makes currently makes intercession for us. And I think we can safely assume that it's probably better than ours, whatever that means, but in what ways? What does it mean to say that Jesus Jesus intercedes on our behalf? How does that really change anything for me today? How does it affect me? Maybe you heard that Jesus intercedes, you've always grown up with that term, and thought, Okay, I think that means he talks to God, but what are they talking about? They've been talking for 2,000 years. I know that Jesus elsewhere in the New Testament said that he was going to go prepare a place for the believers, but it also says he's interceding, so he's preparing a place and he's interceding, but okay, that's great to look forward for in the future, but what does it have for me today? That's what I want to look at this morning. I want to know the kinds of things that Jesus is praying for us on our behalf because I believe that What we believe about what Jesus is doing on our behalf should affect our behavior. It should affect how we feel about ourselves and our neighbors and the people that we surround ourselves with. But what I think we'll see as we open up the Bible this morning is intercession was not something that just started with Jesus. Jesus' plan was to always have people that would go before himself on our behalf. And that started in the Old Testament. So this morning, my sermon is really simple. It's got two sections. The first is I want to look at intercession as shown in the Old Testament, specifically through the priesthood that God set up. And then I want to use that sort of as a springboard to look at intercession during Jesus' earthly ministry and what he continues to do on our behalf today. So as I was thinking about what intercession is in the Old Testament the most famous example was probably Moses. Moses was the man that God chose to take Israel out of slavery from Egypt. And we see him interceding for the people before God in Exodus chapter 32. You don't have to go there, but write it down. God was prepared to destroy Israel. He was fed up with their complaints, their, their idol worship, their wandering, But Moses stepped in and he said, don't destroy these people. And God yielded and listened to him. I think that would be a powerful illustration of intercession. You could devote an entire morning to that. But I want to look at the priesthood, which is another example of intercession. I think it's important to remember priests did not always exist in the nation of Israel. They were something established by God with a purpose. So go with me, open up your Bibles to Exodus chapter 28, verse 1. If you're new to your Bibles, just flip open to Genesis. It's the first book in your Bible. And then just turn right to Exodus chapter 28. And this is God speaking to Moses. And he's saying to Moses in verse 1 Then bring near to you Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priests. So God's telling Moses, hey, I want you to take your brother Aaron and I'm going to give him this job. He's going to have a new job description he's going to be this priest. See, the priesthood didn't always exist in Israel. God established it for a reason. After he'd taken the Israelites out of Egypt, God also shared with Moses, in addition to the fact that they had a promised land they were going to, he said, hey, we're going to camp out in this wilderness for a while and in the meantime, I want to dwell with my people. I want to be among my people, God said. That was always his desire ever since Genesis 1 and 2 when God was in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. He was always trying to get back to dwelling with his people. And so he he makes that intent known to Moses. And he says, I want you to set up a rule, rules, commands, a whole system of laws because here is the problem. You had a holy God and an unholy people. And it was impossible for that unholy people to live with that holy God because of the thing called sin. The fact that they were always going to rebel against God. And so, God establishes a way for himself to dwell among his people. And the priests played a role in that. They were in charge of administering the law, the sacrifices, everything that you kind of think of when you think of the Old Testament. Go with me to Leviticus chapter 10. And let's read the job description of the Levites, the priests. Leviticus chapter 10, just the next book over. Leviticus chapter 10, starting in verse 9. He had some clear rules for the priests and the people, but this is talking about the priests here. Uh, Starting in verse 8, actually, Leviticus chapter 10. And the Lord spoke to Aaron, remember he's the priest, saying, drink no wine or strong drink, you or your sons with you. When you go into the tent of meeting, lest you die. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. You are to distinguish between the holy and the common and between the unclean and the clean. And you are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them by Moses. Okay, so what was the job description of the priests? They were to take the laws that God had given them, show them before the people, keep them in front of the people. And when the people broke the law, They were to administer a sacrifice so the people could be brought back into a relationship with God. So God sets up this priesthood sort of as an intermediary, sort of as advocates and people that could go between God and man. This was no more clear than on one particular day called the Day of Atonement. That was a day within the nation of Israel where the priests it's described in Leviticus chapter 16, you can write it down, we're not going to go there, But it's an entire chapter of the Bible that's devoted to one day. And on that day, the high priest would go and make sacrifices on behalf of the people. He would first make a sacrifice for himself because he himself as the priest was sinful. And then when he had made himself right with God, he was then able to fulfill his job of sacrificing an animal and bringing it to God on behalf of the people and cleansing the sins of the entire nation. That was the function of the priests on one particular day, but they did that throughout the year. It was always, and this is key, it was always a temporary solution. The intercession allowed God to dwell among his people, but it was always temporary. That's what was established in the Old Testament. That was sort of a, maybe an ongoing, sort of a first glimpse of what intercession would look like. But then you get to Psalm 110. Why don't we go there? Open the middle of your Bible to Psalm chapter 110. This is later on after Israel's been brought into that promised land. They're no longer in the wilderness. They've set up their nation. They're now being ruled by kings. They have the priesthood going. And King David comes up with this psalm. God gives it to him. And he wrote it down. And the key part that I want to focus on is that the Old Testament priests were established to intercede, but Psalm 110 shows us that eventually a different type of priest would come, and that different type of priest would have a different type of work that he did, a different type of intercession. Read with me starting in verse 1 of 110. The Lord says to my Lord, you stop, that's David's basically sitting on the wall watching the conversation between God the Father and Jesus. And he's just recording basically what he sees. So this is God speaking to Jesus. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. This is what I want to focus on, verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change His mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek." Psalm 110 foreshadowed a different type of priest to come. We know that because he makes reference to Melchizedek, who was this interesting figure in the Old Testament. He only appears a handful of times in the Bible. He first appears in Genesis chapter 14, when Abraham, the chosen man by God to lead to, to establish the nation of Israel, basically... Comes across this king named Melchizedek, but he wasn't just a king, he was also a priest. But if you think about King Melchizedek, who was a priest and a king, and then you think about the priest that God established in in Israel, priests had a very specific function and responsibility, but they had very limited power. They weren't meant to rule, they were meant to lead worship, but not to rule. Think about it. There's always two offices in Israel, two offices, one the king and one the priest. In the case of Moses, he led, wasn't a king, but he led the people, and then you had Aaron, his brother, the priest. That, that trend continues when the first king of Israel is established under Saul, and he has a priest, Samuel. Same thing with even King David, who wrote this psalm. He had the priest, Nathan. So verse 4 is basically saying, look, God established this priesthood But one day, God's going to usher in a different type of priesthood. That's important because it's connecting the dots between the work of the priest that was foreshadowed as compared to the work of the priest to come, Jesus, who would also rule forever. And so it follows that that different type of work and that different type of priest would have a more ongoing, I'll call it, and a more permanent intercession. I mean, just think about the difference between the priests which were known as the Levites and Jesus Christ the greater high priest the quality of the sacrifice that he was bringing before God you had in the Old Testament the blood of an animal was paying for the sin of a man but really it should have been the blood of a man paying for the sin of a man a like for like exchange and in addition to just the like for like exchange think about the fact that an animal was brought unwillingly to the altar and slaughtered but Jesus came before the cross willingly ready to do the father's will and to hit home the idea that Jesus' sacrifice was better it happened once as opposed to in Leviticus chapter 16 the day of atonement was something that happened every year so it wasn't but it wasn't just the quality of the sacrifice which was better The the greater priest, Jesus, would not only have a greater quality of sacrifice, he would have a wider scope. The Levites would bring in the animal to sacrifice for the sins of the A nation, one nation. Jesus would come to die once for all. All people from all nations could come to believe in him. So a greater priest would come, Hebrews 9 sums that up beautifully. I've listed that in the community group questions for you guys to read this week. But as we look at intercession in the Old Testament, what we start to realize is this was a foretaste of things to come. So I want to spend the rest of our time this morning using that as sort of a springboard to look at Jesus' intercession in his earthly ministry and how it continues today. As I was thinking about this, I, I realized, and you probably already realized, you could go a couple different places. In Luke chapter 22, verses 31 and 32, Jesus is about to be taken up into Roman custody, and he's going to be offered up and crucified. And he kind of looks at Peter and says, Peter, the devil's been trying to sift you this entire time, but I've been praying for you, and I'm not going to let him snatch you from my hand. I thought, well, that would be a real measure of how effective Jesus' intercession was. But that kind of was isolated to Peter. Uh, the power applies to me, and it's, it's true. if it's true for Peter, it's true for me. But I thought about that, but then, and then I also thought about John 14, thinking about how Jesus' intercession is, is good on his promise. He, acts, he's, he delivers on his promises, because in John 14, Jesus says right the, the night before he's going to be betrayed. He says, I'm going to send my Holy Spirit, and we looked at that last week, and he, he delivers on his promise. When he goes before God, he does the things he's going to do. So I thought we could look at that. But then I realized there's this amazing passage in John chapter 17, and that's where I want to spend the rest of my time. Go ahead and open up there in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, 4th book of the New Testament. And it tied in with this theme that was developed in the Old Testament of the priesthood. John chapter 17, if you're not familiar with the Bible, is essentially named the high priestly prayer. Jesus is having a conversation with God, and we happen to get to hear it, kind of like David got to hear what the Father was talking to the Son about. And I thought, well, this is unique. We don't normally get to see the kind of conversations that Jesus gets to have with the Father. In Mark chapter uh, 1, it talks about Jesus getting up early in the morning and going and talking to the Lord, but we never really get to be privy to what's in there. Haven't you ever wanted to be in on certain conversations? I mean, I think even to going back to the example I started with, my brother Daniel, don't you think he would have wanted to know, even at the age of five, if he did something wrong, what our dinner table's conversations were like when he returned to the orphanage, but we were sitting there talking about this brother that we had for eight eight weeks, but he's gone. Wouldn't he have liked to have known if he could have done anything different? Or even if we were thinking about adoption, that could have given him a hope. But Daniel didn't know that or maybe to take a more real-life example for you guys. In my first job out of college, I still remember, I was coming up on my first annual review, and I was just, I was a little bit nervous, because uh, I didn't know what they were gonna say. I was not i was not gonna get fired, I wasn't worried about that. Um, but I remember I was young and married and didn't make a lot of money, and so I was anticipating that we would have a conversation about my compensation, and also about my strengths and my weaknesses and all that stuff. I just remember right before my meeting for my annual review, my bosses walked by my desk, both of them, and didn't even say anything, went into a room right next to me and shut the door. And I was like, man, I really want to know what they're talking about. I think that's kind of, when I was getting into John 17, I was like, that's kind of what I want to know. I want to know what is, what is Jesus says he's interceding. He says he's preparing a place. What is he talking about? Because what I believe about what he's doing will affect how I feel. And so it's with that sort of excitement or anticipation that I think we should enter into John chapter 17, this high priestly prayer. And I want to outline for you guys, just so I don't keep you kind of waiting, Jesus makes four requests. And this kind of teases out the question I began with. Remember when I said, what is Jesus talking to God about for 2,000 years? What's he pray on our behalf? What does he intercede? What does that look like? He makes four requests. And if you're taking notes, Jesus requests protection for the believers, holiness, unity, and glory. I'll say them again. Protection, holiness, unity, and glory. So if you're not there already, go to John chapter 17, and let's look at what Jesus has requested in John chapter 17, but continues to request on our behalf today. You know, I think you could say, yeah, this is a past event that happened, but Jesus, you have to realize, is anticipating everything that's about to happen. He knows that he's going to make intercession on our behalf. He knows when he's talking to the disciples in John 17 that the Romans were going to take him and crucify him. He was going to die like we've studied. He was going to be resurrected. He was going to ascend to the right hand of the Father. And then he was going to intercede on our behalf. And so I think even though it was something that happened in the past, it gives us an indication, a foretaste of the kind of stuff that Jesus does pray for us even now. Opening to John chapter 17, let's look at verses 11 and 12 first. Verse 11, it says, And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. Remember, he's talking to God about his disciples. And I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the Son of Destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Of course, that last reference there is to Judas, who betrayed Jesus. But Jesus' first request here is very clearly. He's asking the Father to protect the disciples. And it's not just any kind of protection. It's spiritual protection. And it's especially from Satan. As seen with Peter and Luke that I mentioned earlier, Jesus guarded the disciples from Satan during his earthly ministry. That's something that he said he did, so we can believe it to be true. Thus, it makes sense that when he's about to leave earth, he's requesting that God, hey God, can you send in some backup? Can you continue to do this job that I've been doing? Can you protect them? The request for protection is related to their salvation. It's not related to physical suffering. But the significance of that. Is that Christ's intercession assures the security of our salvation? The believer could lose his salvation if Christ was ineffective in his ability to save us and intercede for us to be our mediator. He would be like the Levitical priest we talked about in the Old Testament who would sacrifice on behalf of the people only to have to do it again a year later or more frequently. Hebrews 7, verse 25, write that down. You don't have to go there, but I mentioned it earlier. It connects the security of our salvation directly to Jesus' intercession. In the ESV, it says Jesus is able to save to the uttermost. The NIV actually puts it more candidly. It says that Jesus saves completely. We know that Jesus is concerned with our spiritual protection rather than our physical protection, Because of verse 15, so go there with me, just down to verse 15, where Jesus says to the Father, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Jesus knew that the disciples had a tough road before them, that there was going to be physical suffering, that they were going to be persecuted, they were going to be flogged and even some crucified like him notice that Jesus doesn't request that they be taken out of their circumstances. Oftentimes we think that we need to be taken out of our circumstances, but God has us exactly where he wants us. And we know that because of Jesus' next request, which is holiness. Go to verses 17 through 19 with me. Starting in verse 17, Jesus says to his Father on our behalf, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Jesus asked the Father to sanctify them. Another way of putting that is God is going Jesus is requesting that God make us holy. I want to make two observations about this point. The first is that God is the one who makes us holy. It's not achieved through self effort. Jesus requests this from the Father, so it has to be something that's given to us, not something we just put on ourselves. But this runs contrary oftentimes to how we operate within the church, kind of a sort of religious performance, focusing on the amount of times we read our Bible per day, or how often we show up to church, or how often we attend our small groups or community groups. I'm not saying that these things are bad but they were never meant to be the things that made us holy in and of themselves. They were just acts, things that would happen to us. Ultimately incapable of changing my heart, which is what God wanted and sought to do through Jesus in the first place, to take a sinful heart and make it his. So rightly viewed, when I see that God is the one who gives me holiness upon Jesus' request, then I begin to see these things like reading my Bible or showing up to church, or meeting with my community group, as conduits, as channels, as ways that God is going to make me holy. Instead, I I was just sitting there, uh, like everyone else, working from home this week, and thinking about my neighbors. They've got way too many cars, they're really noisy, they get in my way, they talk when I don't want to talk, they're loud when I want to be quiet, when my son's napping. And then I started to think, wait... God might want to use my noisy neighbors to grow me and my patience. See, what happens is instead of viewing my noisy neighbors as inconvenient, I see them as an opportunity to grow in holiness and potentially even be a witness to. Instead of showing up to church or community group looking just to absorb, which, while that's part of the reason we come here, I come ready to care for, to serve, and to, to celebrate others. In 2019, or last year, <laughs> the Young Marrieds group, uh, we studied a book called Sacred Marriage. It was a great book. The subtitle was really revealing. I think I shared about it before. It said, what if God, uh, what if God intended, what if God designed marriage to make us holy more than to make us happy? See, going back to Jesus' first request on protection, he wasn't asking them to be taken out of their circumstances out of their relationships, out of their trials or difficulties. God intends for us to be exactly where he has us. The only question is, are we seeing it as a place where God is going to make us holy, where Jesus is asking God to make us holy in those circumstances? Because of Jesus' intercession, I have God's help to do something I could never do on my own, become like Jesus. I can't muscle my way through that. Just ask my wife. The second observation that I want to make is it's not that just God makes, God isn't just the one that makes us holy, holy he also gives us the tool. Look at verse 17, the second half, let's read the whole verse together. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. That second part is what I want to hammer home. Your word is truth. The observation about holiness is that God's word is a major tool that he's going to use to make me Holy. Jesus is requesting that God sanctify us. He make us like him. Scripture attests to this. This isn't new news to us. There's verses replete with this. Going back to the Old Testament, Joshua 1.8 says, This book of the law you shall meditate on day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Psalm 1, verses 1 through 3 would take it even farther and say, Blessed is the man who walks not in the way of sinners, nor, nor blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on the law he meditates day and night. For then that man will be like a tree planted by streams of living water, and he will bear fruit in season. Jesus talked about this in his ministry in, in John 14 when he said, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And whoever loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love my, him and manifest myself to him. All of these scriptures and more attest to the difference that God's word will make in the life of the believer. And I know that that sounds almost hypocritical to what I just said, because I just said holiness is not found in reading your Bible for performance. But I think we can distinguish between reading it for performance and checking off a list, and reading it for heart change. All we have to do is see that God is going to be making us holy, and a primary way in which he's going to do that, in addition to our circumstances, is his word. And so if you felt distant from God, maybe you can ask him to increase your thirst and capacity for his word in your life. Holiness is given by God, but I can choose to cooperate with him more or less. I can choose to open my Bible every day and ask God, what do you have for me today? Because of Christ interceding on my behalf, I have God's help to make me holy and I have his word. The third request that Jesus makes and that I want to focus on is in verses 20 through 23. So let's go there. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us here sitting today. Jesus' third request to God is a plea for the Father to unify the believers. And the pattern of that unity is in God himself. God is triune God. He's three parts. God the Father, the Son, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit. All have very separate and distinct roles, never overlapping, never fighting, but always unified in what they were doing. And so it's in that pattern that Jesus is saying, hey, Father, God, can you let them in on what we've been having for eternity? In addition just to the request for unity, he makes the purpose really clear. Look at verse 23. Verse 23 basically says, "so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me." Jesus understood that a house could not be divided. A house divided could not stand. He wants the world to see a unified community of believers. I do not think that means we can't have disagreements. The early church had many disagreements. We still have many disagreements. But I think what it should force us to ask, are the disagreements that I have with my brothers and sisters major, or are they rather trivial? I think that oftentimes we'll find that they're trivial, especially within the context of our own church body. I think it means we should be careful about the battles that we pick, the things that we say to each other. We should ask ourselves by saying, we should first ask ourselves, is this even a big deal? Is this a matter of preference or opinion, conviction? Or is this, can I look at the Bible and say, wow, this is where this is grounded? And then if I still disagree, if I still dispute or argue with my brother or sister, have I followed the examples and the outline for resolving disputes within the body? Jesus' intercessory prayer called for unity. And if you're taking notes, the question for us to ask is how are we cooperating with Jesus' vision and request that we be unified believers? His fourth and final request is perhaps my favorite. Or at least this week, it really stood out to me. Let's, ver- let's pick back up kind of in the, what we just read, verses 22 and go down to 24. It says, the glory the glory, that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. There's that unity we just talked about. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. Jesus' final request concerns the glorification of the believers. And that is like a, a very, a term that we often read in the Bible, God's glory. But sometimes I feel like it doesn't mean that much, at least to me, or I don't quite realize it or understand it, what it, the implications it has. But when you read this prayer, it's amazing to see what Jesus is asking. He's saying, God, would you make them like you're about to make me after I die and I'm resurrected and I'm, I'm on the king, I'm on the throne with you and I'm ruling as king. Would you give them the glory that you're going to give me? Jesus wants his followers. It was recorded here for us to read. He wants his followers to understand what God's going to do in their lives and in his plan. This is totally in line with what Jesus talks about. I mean, think about Matthew chapter 6. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus is talking to his followers. He says, look, guys, you can store treasure in two places. You can store it up here on earth, or you can store it up in heaven. You can use your time, your talents, your treasures, your influence, your relationships for your own gain and your own purposes, or you can use them for God. And if you use them for God, you will be storing treasure for yourself in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy. Paul picks that analogy up in 1 Timothy 6, verse 19, and he says, Store up for yourselves treasures, laying a good foundation for the life that is to come. See, God knows how we work. After all, he made us. He's the designer. He's the engineer, the creator. He knows what causes us to to tick. He knows that people will move in a direction where they're incentivized, where they recognize benefit. And that's what Jesus is trying to pray for right here on our behalf. He's saying, God the Father, will you make them glorious? But also, don't just do that. Help them to realize what you're doing in their life. Help them to realize what they can step into now if they believe in me. Not entirely. That's waiting for us in heaven. But we 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 can take part in what God has for us now in being made like him, in his glory and holiness. Like Rick said last week, God wants to give us new hearts. And those new hearts should have new desires, new affections. We should be dreaming about different kinds of things when we come to Christ. Desiring different types of things for our relationships or our money. He wants us to treasure new things, to see true riches and true glory. As that wonderful hymn says, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face." And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Jesus wants us to see who he is making us into. That we would step into the reality, begin to step into the reality of who we are in him. Jesus' work, his one act of redemption that we're talking about isn't just a life insurance policy that becomes activated when we die. It's something that pays dividends now something that should affect us now, something we can find hope in now. Because Jesus intercedes on our behalf, we can trust that we'll become as glorious as him one day. These are the four things that Jesus prays about, that he prayed about in John 17, and he continues to make intercession, it says in Hebrews 7, for us. So the question is, for us, do we believe these things? These four things have implications for each of us now in our own individual families, and in our own individual lives. Protection, holiness, unity, glory. Is God my source of protection? Or am I putting my hope and trust in something else? Am I moving towards or away from holiness? Am I committed to being a harmonious member of my church body? Am I unified? Am I excited about what God's doing in my life? and where I'm going to be ultimately, or does heaven bore me? See, I believe that belief affects behavior. What I believe about Jesus, including his intercession, affects what I believe and how I live my life today. And it's interesting, as we kind of teased out those four requests that Jesus made, just think, it changes how I feel about myself. Because Jesus is protecting me, I can be secure in my salvation, knowing that I'm loved by God when maybe other people aren't loving me or I have an unloved past, unlovable past. But it doesn't just change how I feel about myself, it should change how I feel about others and interact with others. Jesus' request for unity should change how I treat my neighbors, the people in my church, my family. And then, beyond that, it should even affect my goal and my destination, to be more holy like Christ, and where I'm going to spend in a glorious eternity with Jesus. I think my hope, as I was coming out of preparation for this, was that, this morning and, and this, this whole series has done more than just teach us a bunch of fancy words like intercession or ascension or Jesus' session, which like I said, I didn't know until about a month ago, which is like his reign. The this this series is not about increasing our theology or just adding to our vocabulary. Theological terms though are important, right? Because they help us understand God's amazing work. But that's, that's what needs to be changed. We don't just need to increase our knowledge about God. We need to increase our appetite and our our thirst and our heart for God. So as I was studying this one act of righteousness and trying to figure out how am I not going to overlap and things like that, what I realized is, oh my gosh, every single point that we're going through should increase my appreciation for God. Intercession is just one part, but it has so much that it implies for us. When combined with all those, we begin to see how involved God got in our situation and just quite how much of a mess we were in before God involved. We think about the many consequences of sin, right? A lie told by Satan, believed by Adam and Eve, acted upon in betrayal, led to despair, led to to people wandering, hurting each other, and eventually death. One act of disobedience and sin led to one more than one act of problems for us. But then I see that God has done in one act of righteousness something that could cover all of this problem that we found ourselves in. And at the center of God's solution is Jesus who continues to intercede on our behalf. I want to end this morning where I began with my brother Daniel. My brother Daniel, is, he's always my little brother and in some ways he's always annoying but I love him. I am so thankful that we adopted him. He's 24 years old now, and he's doing great. He's not perfect, just like me, but I'm just so grateful that that I have a little brother. Our family adopted him 18 years ago when he was 6 years old. I can vividly remember those first few years, What a difference between now when Daniel first arrived and what he is now. He spoke a different language. He was unbelievably disobedient. Instead of just saying no, he spit in my face. And sometimes in the the face of my parents. We knew partially what we were getting into, which is why I think we hesitated in the first place. We just said, okay, we're going to do this for two months, but someone else can do it lifelong. But then we heard from Daniel's advocate that he was heartbroken, and it moved our hearts. Because Daniel's advocate spoke, we listened, and it changed our hearts. So when I think about Jesus' intercession that we're studying, I can't help but draw the connection. Daniel's advocate was an imperfect person, just like you and me, interceding, advocating on Daniel's behalf. And because he did, look how much good has happened. So what does it mean to say that Jesus, who's not imperfect, but he's perfect, that he doesn't just intercede once a year, but forever in eternity, what does it mean to say that he intercedes? You know, like Daniel, all of us are adopted into the family of God. We come into the family with all kinds of baggage. I don't know where you're coming from, but I know I have baggage. We come with a different type of language like Daniel habits and a way of life, but God gave us a new heart. He takes our baggage and he redeems it. He takes painful circumstances and redeems them. We learn, we learn a new language. Our tongue, instead of tearing people down and dividing, begins to build up. New habits replace old ones, and we become living a life that's not perfect still, and we still fail but we become into a life we never could have imagined living without God's grace in our life. Like Daniel, too, we are given a new and secure home forever called heaven, part of which can be realized now because of what Jesus did and does. And it's all because of what Christ did on the cross and how he continues to intercede on our behalf before God. All praise be to our Savior, Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, we just thank you so much that you really have done the work that we could never do ourselves, that the mess we find our lives in, maybe even today, Lord, can be picked up because of what you have done and what you are continuing to do. Lord, help us to participate. Help us to humble ourselves before you, to use things like circumstances and your word and people to make us more like Jesus, putting you and your word and others first before ourselves so that we can become an effective witness and we can see the power of which was present on the cross and continues to be present even here and now. Lord, make us more like your son. We pray this all in his name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.